This is Iron Mike Stedman, and I want to thank you for listening to my show, Dog Whistle Branding. For those of you who've been with me from the very beginning, you know I have a passion for supporting and elevating veteran-owned small business owners. Over the course of this series thus far, in addition to my work with Barker Labs and other clients, I've also become interested in technology startups. And as I look towards the future, I'm ready to punch above my weight, focusing not only on veteran-owned small businesses, but also veteran-led tech startups. My goal is to make Ironbound Media the premier resource on brand strategy, category design, and podcast production for veteran-owned companies of all shapes and sizes. So to kick things off for today's episode, I'm joined by Ariel Jackson, marketer-in-residence at First Round Capital, a venture capital firm that provides seed-stage funding to technology startups. Ariel specializes in product marketing and positioning, with a background that includes Google, Square, and various other startups in Silicon Valley. After listening to her on the First Round podcast in-depth, I reached out to her via Twitter and invited her on the show. We talked through the different positioning framework she utilizes with her clients, resulting in a masterclass on positioning for veteran entrepreneurs. Before we jump into the show, I do need to make a quick announcement about my upcoming book, Black Veteran Entrepreneur. Validate your business model, build your brand, and step into your greatness. For the next 24 days or so, I'm taking pre-orders for my book via Indiegogo, which includes various different perks, such as access to my author community of beta readers, tickets to my launch event, and signed copies of the book. Stripe, the online payments platform's core purpose is to increase the GDP of the internet. In similar fashion, the purpose of my book is to increase the economic vitality of Black America by way of Black veteran entrepreneurs. I believe that BVEs are the biggest untapped resource we have in America today because when we rise up, we take our families and communities with us. Whether you're a Black veteran or not, there's value in this book for you as I share everything you need to know to successfully launch a business, whether you're venture-backed or not. I'd be honored for you to support my pre-launch campaign at the link in the show notes. All right, enough of me talking. Gunny, get them ready. Yo, saddle up, lock and load. Welcome to Dog Whistle Branding, brought to you by the team at Ironbound Media and the Lions Pride, where we provide weekly tack planning on marketing, brand strategy, and category design for early and growth stage veteran-owned small businesses to keep you in the fight and not face down in a rice paddy. I'm your host, Iron Mike Stedman, a Marine Corps veteran, godfather of Dog Whistle Branding, and CEO of Ironbound Media, a podcast production agency that helps veteran-owned businesses create, distribute, and grow branded podcasts in order to engage with your ideal audience. Before we jump into the show, make sure you subscribe to our newsletter at the link in the show notes or visit our website, dogwhistlebranding.com to stay up to date on all things DWB and our work at Ironbound Media and the Lions Pride. All right, get out your pen and paper and get ready to build a dog whistle brand. Saddle up, lock and load. Ariel, welcome to Dog Whistle Brandon. Thanks so much for having me. What do you think of that intro? That's a military thing from the movie Platoon. Saddle up, Saddle lock up. and load. I like it. I like it. Yeah, I've you, never been introduced that way before. Yeah, you click the M16, you pull it back, put the bullet in the chamber and uh, keep it moving. All so, 
I'm a little giddy today because I feel like I'm super excited to have you here. I told uh, Arielle that her podcast on In-Depth, where she was talking about branding and positioning, was probably one of the best podcasts I've ever listened to on the subject, so much so that I've listened to it multiple times and sent out to a bunch of people. I've also um, read all her articles and even trolled YouTube to find some of her uh, old stuff. And so I'm like giddy to have you on the platform today. You're too kind, Mike. <laughs> I'm happy to be here with you. So Ariel is the marketer in residence at First Round Capital, which is a venture capital firm for early stage founders, one of the premier ones, if I'm not mistaken. And I also found you by way of the First Round Review, which led me um, to the podcast. So, you know, First Round Capital puts out their thought leadership through their own publication, which is basically the Harvard Business Review of uh, Venture Capital. And she's got some great articles in there and has a wealth of knowledge and background in, uh, in positioning. And so what I would love to start, Ariel, is uh, for you to just introduce yourself to our listeners. Sure. I love that you called the first round review the Harvard Business Review for early stage startups because back in, um, I think it was like 2012 or so, a woman named Camille started it. And that was kind of, that was kind of her summary. Her goal was to start that. So many years later, it's been realized. Uh, so I'm the, as you said, the marketer in residence at First Round Capital. I've been doing that role for about eight years and helping hundreds of startups who are just getting started really lay the foundation for how to talk about themselves so they can build a lasting brand. Um, I have a background in product marketing. So I grew up through Google's associate product marketing manager track. I was like 22 and fresh out of grad school and um, joined that program, which is like a two-year alternative to business school where you learn everything by doing it. Um, and then I worked at Square in a, before they really had a marketing team. I was part of their business team, did everything from retail partnerships to what is really product marketing to growth to really everything. Um, and then joined an early stage startup that was funded by First Round, which is how I got to know them. That company was acquired by Twitter. And I decided not to join Twitter with the rest of the team as I had just left Square and didn't want to like leave one of Jack's companies and then go work at another one. So I uh, started consulting after that and first round ended up being one of my first clients. How are you enjoying this new phase of your uh, own entrepreneurial journey? With the teaching part? Yeah, with the teaching part. Being yeah. A consultant. yeah. So um, I've always for the last eight years done some consulting and some working with first round. And um, I, I really my consulting business has always got allowed me to go a little more in depth with the founders that I work with than first round because first round does about, I want to say something like 40 investments every two years, something like that, or maybe it's 40 investments here. I don't even have my data, right? But it's a lot. And so I spend something like between five and 20 hours with, with each company. And in the independent consulting I do, I end up going a little deeper, being able to, to do more with those founders. One of the, the problems with that is when I, I, I work half time at first round, I have my consulting on the side. I also have two little boys at home that try to like pick up from school a few days a week. And what I found was that I was saying no to a lot of founders who were asking for consulting help. And one of my clients through first round was this, this platform Maven, which is a cohort based education product. I helped them with their naming and positioning and all of that. And the founders were like, you should teach a class on this. And I realized that teaching a class would allow me, instead of saying no to all these founders who needed help, I could say, I'm sorry, I can't take you on as a consulting project, but you should take my class and be able to deliver value to more founders and reach more people 
and um, you know, get people started off on the right foot, but with a little bit more of like a one-to-many rather than a one-to-one approach. Well, one of the things that's got to be an, a value add for you is that given the fact you've worked with so many founders over the years and your experience at Square and Google, you have a lot of pattern recognition. So, for you, know, sure. you, yeah. to, you know, you get to take a lot of shots at learning and practicing this craft. And that's why I want to get you on a podcast, because I know for a fact that a lot of veterans were very good at operations. We're very good at leadership, general management. But when it comes to positioning products and services in the marketplace, that's a different skill set. And if you haven't mm-hmm. studied it, if you haven't learned the frameworks, you know, it's going to make you swim upstream constantly. Mm-hmm. And in this commoditized marketplace, you know, online, it seems like people are selling at us 24-7, 24-7. Your branding, your positioning, not only is that going to be the moat around your business to protect you from uh, threats and competition, et cetera, but it's also going to be the thing that's going to allow you to violate your business model and drive revenue. Because if you position your product or service in the right way, um, that's going to be one of the keys to success. Yeah, for sure. And you've done it pretty well. I mean, what we'll say, get a lot of people reaching out saying, oh, come on my business podcast, come on my marketing podcast. And I don't do all of them. But I, when you asked me to be on the show, you said, hey, run this podcast specifically focused on veteran entrepreneurs. And I'm writing a book and I'm also focused on black veteran entrepreneurs and teaching them the skills they need to be better entrepreneurs. That's different right? It's not everyone else who has another marketing book or another marketing podcast. You really have a sense of your audience. And I think that's where it all starts. So I, what I thought is, Hey, I want to reach that audience. I don't know. I don't know. I don't have as much exposure to black veteran entrepreneurs as I do to, you know, your typical Silicon Valley entrepreneur tends to be still a white man. Um, and for the way you've positioned your platform, we reach veterans. We're for veterans. We're going to teach these school skills specifically to veterans. That's already different. And that's already that, you know, that made me want to be on your podcast. So, um, as you said, there are frameworks, there are ways to learn this, there are ways to operationalize it. And there's some creativity and intuition involved. And I think people who have military experience are really good at applying frameworks. They're really good at honestly, like grit and resilience, which is a lot of what being an entrepreneur takes. Um, and if I can help you know, supply a few frameworks to be employed by a new audience. That's awesome. So I would love for us to start by breaking down positioning and how you Mm -hmm. view it. Now I'm going to cheat a little bit because your podcast was dope as hell. And Mm -hmm. I'm also familiar with, uh, hang, I forgot the name of the other, uh, product strategist. Uh, obviously awesome. What's her name? Oh, April Dunford. Yeah. April Dunford. And Mm -hmm. that, you know, uh, compete, modify and create. Let's start there. Yeah, yeah. So backing up one step. So what's positioning? What is the space that you want to occupy in the brain or in the mind of your target audience? And how can you, with all the associations and the words and the language and the visuals and everything you use around your brand, help cement that position in your audience's mind? Ultimately, your brand is up to them. You know, it's in the it's in the eye of the beholder. But what can you do? to stake claim to the position that you actually want. So I'll give you like a really simple example. Um, You know, if you think about a product having a category and you could be, you know, you could, you could be your company, for example, you could be a podcast platform. You could be a business advice service. You could be a consulting firm, whatever language you use and to describe you, that's going to help bring all the associations into the target audience's mind. And so 
when you say, you know, you can compete, you can modify, or you can create, those are really the only three choices when it comes to category design. There's a lot of emphasis today in category creation. And you see a lot of blogs, a lot of podcasts talking about, you know, you're only going to win if you create a new category. I actually don't believe that to be true. I believe that category creation is one viable path to creating a great business, but competing in an existing category Think about, you know, when Google launched search, they were not the first ones to do that, right? Like there were other online search engines at the time that they displaced. And now you think Google and you equate it with search, but they were not the first there. Um, modifying a category. The example I always love is Nest and the learning thermostat. We all had thermostats. We never thought about them. They were these things that came with our apartments and homes, and we never took them out unless they broke. And all of a sudden, Nest came along, and they modified the category that was old and boring of thermostats, and they put the word learning next to it, and they brought sexy back to thermostats, and we were all talking about it again. And so by modifying a category, putting that word learning with that word thermostat, effectively, you're creating a new category. You're doing a carve out of what is a big market and creating a new market within it. And then creating a new one, um, you know, that that gets a lot of airtime. So we don't need to talk as much about it, but creating a new one is, you know, before Eero came along, there was no home Wi-Fi system. There were routers. You know, before uh, Gainsight came along, there was no such thing as a customer success platform. And so really, how can we put words to something that didn't exist before and make people think of a new category in a new way? So I've recorded an entire video on a veteran's guide to category design. And, awesome. you know, I do preach it. And I said before, you know, Christopher Lockhead is one of my friends and mentors. But I also agree with you that not everyone is mentally ready to try to design a new category, let alone bring it to life, because you have to leave into it. It's not a part time thing that you mm -hmm. do. you got to really own it. And so for me, with Dog Whistle Branding, I look at myself between modify and create. Because really what I'm doing is I'm driving some of that demand that people are spending on uh, ineffective marketing, uh, digital marketing services, right? And I'm also introducing this new concept of dog whistle branding as opposed to standard branding. Because what I'm mm -hmm. saying is in this digital world, right, you need a perfect customer, you need a whistle to communicate with them, and then you need a brand to, that says, I'm for you, take my money, you know? I wanna make you win. And so that's how I've positioned dog whistle branding. But hearing that podcast has made me, I mean, just before we jumped on this, I had a small business owner ask me, you know, how can he apply category design to his industry? And it's like T10 flooring and window out in Jackson Hole. And I said, for you, it means really niching down, taking advantage of a market opportunity that's too big for these larger players in the space that you have a, a, um, a, a strong foundation in, relationships, et cetera, that trust you know, where do you already have trust that it's hard for these other companies to take advantage of? And that's how you can, you know, own your own niche and essentially modify an existing category. Yeah. And that's exactly what Nest did with Learning Thermostat. They did it. They made it premium. They made it beautifully designed. They made it for like tech people who wanted to, you know, control their temperature from their phone. They made an app that went with it. They had aspirational values sort of to be like the Apple of, you know, thermostats. Um, you can niche down in so many different ways. And that's part of what positioning is about. It's understanding for who, who am I solving a problem? And how do they see the problem? And maybe they don't even see the problem yet. And you actually have to remind them that they have a problem. And then really articulate, who am I for? 
what's their problem and how do I solve it differently and better? Um, I was working with a company recently. We were doing this exact exercise. They have like big aspirations to be this big thing. And that's great. But what are you for the next 18 months? And that's really how you think about your position. Because in 10 years, you might grow into a bigger position. Nest is no longer learning thermostats. Nest is a smart home company. You know, they make connected devices. But when they were first coming to market and they had one product, they were they were a learning thermostat. When we start talking about competing, you said it does make sense for sure for some uh, brands to compete. I know the majority of my listeners are veteran small businesses, uh, venture back early stage venture back startups, and they might not necessarily have the funds to compete. So, what does it take when you really have to go after that category king? The the one that's in the marketplace, what do they need to be prepared to do before that's even a consideration? Yeah. So I would start with what is that category king not doing or who are they not serving well today? So in your example of like the windows, for example, maybe the big players in the space are doing all like corporate buildings and, you know, commercial development and nobody's focused on, you know, the homeowner who's remodeling their single family home. So that would be a hole in the market. The big guys are dominating everything, but they're not really doing a great job servicing that small business client. And so if a, another brand, a smaller, newer brand came in, they could displace them for that part of the market. And so th- another example, this one comes from what my probably my favorite marketing book. It's called Positioning. It's um, It was written the same year I was born, 1981. So it's 41 years old, but it's like a really, really good book. And this is such a simple example. But when cigarettes were popular, all these cigarette manufacturers were going after the same buyer. And that buyer was a man for the most part. And there were women who were buying cigarettes, but not at the same rate as men. And one of the cigarette companies came up with Virginia Slims. And all it was was a longer, skinnier cigarette, but they positioned it for women. And that became the number one cigarette for women because all those other cigarette brands weren't really weren't really speaking to or solving the problems that women smokers at the time had. So, um, you know, sometimes you're going after a category king. In that case, they were competing with every other cigarette manufacturer, but they realized that women weren't being served by the products that were out there today. Or your friends or your your client's example, maybe that small homeowner who has you know ten windows to buy isn't being served by the big players for whom that's like a tiny contract and they don't care. Uh, so I think sometimes it, really it's about who's my audience and how do I serve them better than those big players? And you can make anything kind of niche down in that way. My friend who's a brand strategist shared this really funny example on Instagram. I think it was this morning. She she put a picture of this like fancy hose. It's a garden hose. Garden hose is a commodity product. You can buy a garden hose anywhere from anywhere from like, you know, $9.99 to $29.99, I think with like different nozzles and stuff. I've never thought about my garden hose, right? right? I bought a new nozzle for my garden hose, but I haven't even bought a new hose. This was a premium garden hose. It was like $129, beautiful colors, beautifully designed. And there's a market for people who want to, they love their gardens. They spent all this time and money making them beautiful. And now they have a crappy garden hose that's like cramping their style. And they would probably spend $120 on a really beautifully designed garden hose. And so that's an example. Like it's still a garden hose, but yeah, you never I just, saw one like that. I wrote a newsletter a few weeks ago on a uh, liquid death. 
as like mm-hmm. a master class in positioning. Because mm-hmm. when I was looking up the founder, I'm thinking about to, you know, I do my research in podcasts. I'm a podcast guy. So I was like, oh, I want to learn more about Liquid Death. I type in the founder's name. I think it's like Mike Cicero or whatever. Mm-hmm. And he pops up on all these heavy metal punk rock podcasts. It was like no entrepreneurial podcast. And I was like, he knows his tribe. He knows mm-hmm. his audience. And through that research, I found out that he positioned Liquid Death essentially around, you know, the punk rock and uh, heavy metal community for people that are trying to be more healthy. My girlfriend just said she was at a concert. You know, it was like Dreamville, the J. Cole concert. Now, this ain't heavy metal, but it's still that festival vibe. They were selling cans of Liquid Death for like $5 a pop. And people were, you know, killing them, right? And it's all because he knows who, they know who their audience is for. And they've positioned it in a way that's just kind of like, loud and differentiated. It's got a whole mm-hmm. differentiated point of view for the standard, you know, packed uh, water. Or even you think about box, same thing. And then more recently, I've been eating that off the limit cereal. So you could tell like I'm a brand guy. Sometimes these brands just really do kind of speak to me as I'm looking for new alternatives to what I've been traditionally used to. Yeah. And that's exactly it. There's some, what you want to do when you, when you create a new brand is you want to speak really clearly to someone really clear. And it's okay if other people, like for me, I'm like, oh, that liquid death, it's like kind of, you know, it has like a skull on it and some nice font, but like it's water in a bottle. Like I don't personally get it, but I'm not a heavy metal fan. And the person who really gets it, they love it. They're big, big, big super fans. And I would rather have a bunch of people turned on and a bunch of people turned off than have everyone not care. This three-part framework right here, compete, modify, create, at what stage in the process should we be considering this? As early right? as possible. All right. So the reason I ask, you know, it's like even small business clients, they want to do the market segmentation. They want to do all this other stuff. But I'm just like, yo, how are we positioned? Like, how are you showing up? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think right as soon as you have an idea for a business, you can start working on a draft of your positioning. I met with a founder yesterday. She's building um, like a online collaboration thing and she's trying to figure out exactly what the product is at the same time that she's positioning the product. That's fine. We're going through iterations. She's building the product and testing some hypotheses at the same time that we're testing messaging. And she's going to find out, you know, she has a few hypotheses as far as who would want to use this thing and slightly different positioning for each of those hypotheses. And now that they're going to go out and do some experiments across all of those different, they're not like vastly different audiences, but like slightly different audiences um, with slightly different messaging and see like what the, what those early users behavior looks like. Now, as the marketer and residents, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this. I've been telling people, once you create that positioning thesis, get out there and test it. You know, mm-hmm. I say business is a contact sport. You know, I'm a boxer. So, you know, if I want to get good, I can't just hit the heavy bag. I got to get in ring. I got to spar. I got to get punched in the face. The same thing with your messaging and your positioning. So the more you talk to customers, you're going to have a better understanding of your differentiated point of view and what's resonating with your ideal buyer. And you, I'm sure you can tell, right? Like it doesn't make any sense to invest in all this ad spend and all this other stuff if you don't even know who you're talking to. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. A lot of people have taken my class or worked with me and said, gosh, I wish I had done this earlier because we just wasted a hundred thousand dollars on a big, you know, creative 
ad project or a big website redesign. And now we know who we're talking to and what we did doesn't really work anymore. And so getting really clear about your audience and their problems and how you solve it differently and better, what category are you playing in? What's the benefit you would want one happy user to tell another? And then, like you said, that's a hypothesis. And then you got to go test it. And we, we talk a lot about like different ways to go test. You can test even before your product is live. You can test because you know people in your target and you can put a really crappy version of what you're creating in front of them, whether it's a web page or even just sometimes we do index cards with, you know, different words the positioning statements on them with slight variance. We show them the product or mock-ups of the product. We ask them how they would describe it and hear how they talk about it first before they see any of your messaging. And then we put the our different ways to describe the product in front of them and we ask them to read it and just tell us what they think, kind of open-ended, and then get feedback that way. That type of qualitative feedback is really nice because you get to see when people's eyes light up. When do they see the words that they thought in their head on your piece of paper and they have those connections? Um, then, of course, you can do more quantitative ways of testing things, too. You can run A-B tests on Google, on Facebook. You can do it with paid ads. You can even, you know, just put up different variants of your landing page um, or even, you know, more lo-fi ways like um I'm trying to think of a good example. Oh, you, if you have like an outbound sales motion and you have people calling two different versions of the same script, you know, that position the product slightly differently and see how many, you know, next steps you get on each of those. Yeah. And even when you're pitching it, right, mm -hmm. changing different uh, messaging, you know, some people just get used to pitching the same thing over and over again versus like, hey, I'm really good at these pitch competitions. Let me try a different message and see, you know, how this resonates. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm working with a company right now in the bioscience. It's a healthcare bioscience company. Uh, they already they already raised a seed round, but we then went through positioning for their company. We, it's it's a really exciting company. I'm pretty pretty jazzed on this one. And the founder said, "I wish we had done this before we raised our seed. It, we would have raised on such better terms." So really yeah. thought about how we talk about the company. Not only affects you know the money you raise and your investors having that moment of understanding and that moment of understanding, oh, this market's bigger than just this thing for the next 18 months. Um, and paint the path from what you have, where you're going to go, not just for investors, but, you know, for customers too. Now I'll tell you, one of the things I also appreciated about, you know, the way you teach is this idea of when you're starting a business, everybody wants to say your core values, your vision, your mission, all this other stuff. And you're just like, what is your purpose? Mm -hmm. It's like, why do you exist? And I, I'm even working on this with the BVE book, Black Veteran Entrepreneur, because I really enjoy Square's purpose to increase the GDP of the internet. I think that's Stripe. A that one's Stripe. It's awesome. Right, yeah. Stripe. Stripe. I apologize, Stripe. That I is wish a Square had that one. Yeah. That is a very powerful, you know, purpose. And so even for my book, which you could call a product, right? The purpose mm -hmm. of Black Veteran Entrepreneur is to increase the economic vitality of black America through which is me targeting black veteran entrepreneurs, because yeah, I feel awesome. like that is the best audience I can reach out and touch and influence to go back to these communities and start businesses, start nonprofits and really uh, promote the American dream and, you know, deliver on its promises. That's awesome. Yeah. So your purpose statement is what is the change you want to see in the world, irrespective of your own financial gain. And stripes is actually a really nice one because their their financial gain actually 
is dependent on increasing the GDP of the internet. So there's, there's kind of funny, but when you said, you know, I want to increase the vitality of what, what was the words you used exactly for yours? Increase the economic vitality of black America. Okay. There you go. So do I want to root for it? Hell yeah. You know, does everyone else want to root for it? Yes. Um, Does it make me want to hear what else you have to say? So when you start, when you introduce yourself, Hey, I wrote a book. This is my purpose. Do I want to hear what else you have to say? And it really does. And then separately, do I want to work with her for you? And yeah, that would do it too. So that's really what the purpose is. um, Unifying principle is make people root for you and make people want to get on board. Uh, The nice part about purpose and position and how they work together is ideally you can say we exist to increase the economic vitality of black America. We do this by and now you can actually have your positioning statement where you say, how, how do you do it differently? Because I'm sure there's some government agencies whose purpose is fairly similar and they're just doing it in, in probably a different, not as good way. And by um, promoting entrepreneurship in the Black American community, that, I mean, sure you have better words than that, but your, your point of view and your product is actually a, by promoting entrepreneurship. Um, and that's probably different than some other people. So ideally you can have, um, we exist to, there's your purpose. We do this by, there's your product positioning, and this is made possible through, and there's your differentiator. So you actually can make all three go together. And there's your perfect elevator pitch, right? Putting those three ideas together. Yeah. And you actually broke that down in one of your articles, if I'm not mistaken. I may have, I don't know. I can't, honestly, it's been a few years. (laughs) Not so much, much. not so much. The first round review editors make it real easy because I'm like, I have an idea. And then they like help me make it, make a really nice story out of it. Another thing you talk about is this functional versus emotional benefit. And this is something that a lot, I, I, I struggle getting my clients to buy in because they're so afraid, but I'm like, you have a, your pipeline isn't full yet. You know, you really need to, we can grow to that emotional benefit, but right now people need to identify whether you're a vitamin or a painkiller and that you Mm -hmm. are uniquely positioned to relieve them of that pain. Yeah. So when you think about what you'd want one happy user of your service to tell another potential user in the same target when you weren't there. So I like to think of this as the bar test. Like imagine um, one black veteran read your book, right? Who was thinking about entrepreneurship or had some side project and they loved the book. And now they're having drinks with a friend who's also a black veteran, but you're not there. What do you want them to say about your book? I read this book. It taught me blah, 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 blah. There's your benefit, right? You got to read this book. It blah, 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 blah. Okay. So what that one thing, that's your benefit and benefits often, they fall somewhere on that spectrum of functional to emotional, a very functional benefit. If you think about ride sharing is like, get a car in minutes, get where you need to go, you know, call a taxi from your phone. Those are all like real descriptive. It says exactly what you need to do. Whereas an emotional benefit is something that's less descriptive of what the product does and a little more tied to how it makes you feel. So in the early days with Uber and like trying to give everyone a black, the feeling of riding a black car, you know, show up in style, you know, impress your friends, um, your own personal livery, like that kind of stuff. Um, and with Lyft, it was your friend with a car, right? It was the idea of like, you're just getting a ride from a neighbor. Everyone has some extra space when they're driving around a lot more sort of community oriented. 
Um, so when you're just starting out, I like founders to err on the side of the functional until you've earned a reputation and have enough mind share to actually go to the emotional. And a lot of companies kind of start a little too far on the emotional before people really understand what it is you offer. You got to make it simple for people and you can Real phase simple. it out. So when I launched Ironbound Media, Ariella, I said, we make badass, badass podcasts, mm -hmm. you know, because that was our main product. That's what we serve targeting veteran-owned businesses and er early-stage venture-backed startups. And now I'm introducing the brand strategy and the positioning. So I'm getting to that next phase of Ironbound mm -hmm. Media's messaging. But again, I tell people early on, it's like, you know, Don Miller says it best. Can a caveman go to your website 5,000 years ago and grunt out what it is you do in five seconds or less? And you see yep. people's messaging on their website. You're like, I have no idea what they do. Too many big words, too much jargon. I don't want to see words like enable or leverage or any of those business words, synergistic, none of that stuff. Like I want you to talk like a intelligent teenager. Now or I make or caveman. <laughs> yeah. Or a uh, Marine just grunting yeah, it out. <laughs> so one of the things as a marketer this year, right. As an entrepreneur, like I feel like I'm starting to catch my stride because now I've learned to see the world through a market first mentality i.e. identifying, like, is this a good market opportunity? Are people mm -hmm. spending money in it? More, in, more specifically, is my perfect customer spending money in this space? And now that I see that, it's like I look at the world different. And so as you're talking to founders, right, I was like, I got a great idea. I got a great idea. But have you, have you looked and see, like, are you looking through a market first lens? How have you validated that this market exists and that your product is positioned to serve it? Yeah. So one of the things that first round does some, a lot of the time is invest in a founder pre-product. And so one of the things that they're betting on is that this founder has unfair advantage when it comes to understanding the market or has some unfair, deep expertise about their audience. Um, and so, yeah, you have to do your homework as far as how big the market is, but many times you're creating a market. Like if you ask me how big the ride sharing market was before Uber and Lyft were there, I don't, I have no idea. I know how big the taxi market is. I know how much people spend to drive themselves around. Can I size that market? No. Can I make a bet that behavior is going to change and people are going to go in cars with strangers? Like, no, that's a big leap of faith too. So there's this nice, kind of healthy balance of like dream with me. I'm creating something new, but also I understand what the user behavior is today. I understand what it would take to change behavior. You know, I stay in Airbnbs now, but if you asked me 15 years ago, if I'd go stay in a stranger's house instead of a hotel, I, no way, right? Can you size the market? Probably not. And those companies often have a harder time raising money because you have to dream more. You have to take a leap of faith even more. But one of the things that they understood and that they came, um, they really had conviction that this thing was going to work and this is what it was going to take to work. So there's, there's a combination between understanding like um, this, this healthcare company I'm working with, they know exactly how many people suffer from this disease. They know exactly what the competing alternatives are as far as what people do to alleviate their symptoms today. Um, they, they really understand the person who suffers from this condition and exactly what they think, what they feel. And that happened through customer discovery calls that happened through just understanding the market of, of people who suffer from this disease. And they're introducing something brand new that's going to require behavior change, but they understand that user really well. So I'm going to tell you something that I disagreed with. I don't want to say I disagree yeah. with you, but you changed my way of thinking. 
Okay. So when I deal with veteran-owned small businesses, particularly makers, you know, you go to one of these maker markets in like New York City. And I used to be a maker. Yeah, I made jewelry. Yeah. It's really? Yeah. Oh, my girlfriend makes handmade uh, wellness products, like pain relief products. That's awesome. Yeah, that's actually how I ended up at Square. I was at Google at the time and um, I was selling my jewelry at craft fairs and I didn't take credit cards. I just took like PayPal and checks. And uh, I had a friend who had left and gone to Square gave me a reader they're like oh, i know you sell jewelry like here you can check this out at your next craft fair and i did it and i made a lot more money because people spend more when they can take a credit card especially on gifts um and i did this holiday craft fair and i made like three times what i normally made and i hit up that friend and said hey okay i think what you're doing here is real I i'm interested in, in joining you but it makes sense now why you were able to help take that product to market because you understand intimately what the makers are dealing with at that point of sale. How do you make it fluid when they're the one person behind the counter? You know, they're talking to customers. My girlfriend goes to the restroom and she leaves behind the counter. I don't even know what to say. I don't got a script. You know, I'm yeah. just like, here, go ahead and, and sign here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I definitely understood the the craft fair vendor, the food truck vendor, all of that. It was totally helpful in, in joining that company. Well, one of the reasons I bring it up is you walk around these different maker booths, et cetera. And their names don't necessarily tie to the functional benefit of their business, right? Mm -hmm. You know, we've got these clever names, like, let's say we'll have something like uh, Market Street. And then you go see Market Street and it's like leather pants or something. I don't know, mm -hmm. right? And I'm always, I'm telling my girlfriend, like, if I was selling a wellness product, I would have it in the name. It would be like Mike's Handmade Wellness Products or something. But on the podcast, one of the things you addressed was that doesn't necessarily always have to be the case. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. So I always think that browsers like internet browsers are one of the best examples of understanding the different classes of naming. So if you think about uh, the three that, that I've used in my recent lifetime are Internet Explorer tells you exactly what it does. Uh, um, Google Chrome doesn't tell you what it is, but if you work in the field of, uh, of browsers or um, web design, you know that the Chrome is the space around the browser that you don't get to design when you're designing a web app. And Firefox has nothing to do with browsers, totally fanciful. All three products worked out, did very, very well for themselves. And so you can have a descriptive name. It does some of your marketing for you. If I told you like, hey, Mike, you got to sign up for Internet Explorer, you would probably have a sense of what, what that product did. If I told you, hey, you got to sign up for Firefox, you have no idea. Um, and so actually Firefox had to probably spend more initially to make Firefox mean web browser. But once they did, that's actually more memorable because it's different and it sounds kind of different. So one of the naming strategies that I, I like to employ is to pick something that's emotional and evocative, but not necessarily descriptive. And you actually kind of do that with dog whistle branding, if you think about it. Like that doesn't tell you, you know, Internet Explorer, but it does evoke this idea of like a Pavlovian response or like a like a there's all these connotations that it brings up where I can, I can kind of guess maybe what this guy is up about just from the name, but it didn't describe exactly what you do. And I think that camp of names um, is, a, is an interesting territory where you suggest something, but you don't actually describe it. So you draw them in. So they're like, dog whistle branding. And you're right. And whenever I say, yeah, I, I teach founders to treat their brands like a dog whistle. We're not trying to talk to everyone. We're just trying to talk to our perfect customer. So every time you blow on a podcast, that's a whistle. You send out a newsletter, that's a whistle. You tweet. You're trying to get that perfect customer's attention so their ears pop up 
just like a dog will say, everybody goes, oh, that's such a great idea. That's really clever. But you're right. It draws you in. The same thing when we're talking about like Stripe, what's that? You know, mm-hmm. Square, what's that? You know, what's a Google? Yeah. You take yeah, it yeah, for yeah. granted now, but you can evolve. I mean, it yeah, grows. And I think Stripe is such a great name because if you think about it, like what's the thing on the back of your credit card, that mag Stripe, right? And like, there's so many suggestions around Stripe and payments, but it's not called like onlinepayments.com, right? Like they made it mean that. What are your thoughts about this? Does it matter if you're venture backed or not? So like, if you have a lot more money to play around with till you find, I don't even say product market fit. I call it perfect customer fit. You know, that super Ooh. fan that loves you. And you might not necessarily have time to, you, we need money in a bank account like tomorrow, you know, for most bootstrapped, you know, can't get a bank loan, can't get venture back, et cetera, because they don't have a business model, you know, large enough. Do you think that matters with regards to naming, at least early on? So you can be like Dunkin' Donuts and then you just drop the donuts and then you're just Dunkin'. Okay. So is your question, um, should your naming strategy be reflective of how much funding you have behind you? Correct. Early on. Okay. Yeah. So I think that if you have, um, not necessarily, let me put it that way, because like I had a jewelry line and I called it garnish. It's like in that suggestive camp, I had another jewelry line that was called little gems also in that suggestive camp. Um, I had no money. I mean, I, I, I put it, I put into the business what I made on Etsy pretty much. Like it was, it was, uh, not not high dollar value marketing spend here. Um, I don't think that your naming strategy necessarily needs to be dictated by how much money you have in the bank. I think um, if you are naming, there's some fundamentals around naming. Like don't don't spell something or don't have a name that sounds funny on the phone. Like I'll give you an example. We almost named a first round company Lattice. There is actually a pretty successful venture back startup called Lattice right now. We didn't name this other first round company that because we played out this thing where one person's on the phone trying to pitch the company Lattice and they say, hi, I'm calling from Lattice. And the person on the other end goes, what lettuce? Like if there's going to be a confusion about pronunciation and spelling, like that's probably not a good name. But as far as like descriptive or suggestive Uh, based on how much money you have in the bank, it's kind of like the same thing as category, right? Like if you create a new category, it's going to take longer. You're going to have to be more consistent. You're probably going to have to spend more over time. And that's probably a consideration with naming similar. Like if you name your thing really, you know, an empty vessel name, like Eero in the Wi-Fi space, that was almost an empty vessel name. You're going to have to work a little harder and longer to make that mean something where if you're called Internet Explorer, you understand what it is right away. But I don't think it really has to do with how much money you have in the bank. It has a little bit more to do with um, how how patient are you, how consistent are you going to be over time, not necessarily how much are you going to spend. Well, I appreciate you for getting me out of my fixed mindset because I would have this argument with my girlfriend all the time. I'm like, these makers, they need to put the what they do into it. But I heard that podcast. I was like, hmm, I never thought about it this way. Have you on the show with talking through it has reinforced that you're right, you know. Everything it doesn't have to be so set in stone with regards to business. Let the market tell us what they like and how it's received. Yeah, and one little trick that I love to do if you have a name that's not descriptive, uh, go back to Nest and the learning thermostat. For the first few years of the company, well, Nest, it connotes, again, it's that suggestive name, right? It connotes being cozy and taken care of and home, but it doesn't talk about a learning thermostat. For the first few years of the company, they locked up the words of their category, learning thermostat, right under their name, Nest. So if you look at the packaging, it says Nest, Nest. 
big word. And then in small font under that, the learning thermostat. And I think a lot of makers and small brands can do that too, where they say, you know, um, my, my line was called garnish. And then it could say like handmade jewelry. So the category with, with the, with the name and really cement those two things together in every form that you can do that. And all, think about business cards. Business cards have been around forever. They would always do that, right? It would say garnish handmade jewelry. And that's like a very, it's how people want to think. They want to think what's the name. What do you do? And, and just being really consistent and simple about it. One of my friends and clients runs a tumble smart laundry. So they're introducing the future of laundry, you know, to uh, the amenities marketplace, you know, multifamily real estate. But you're right. And uh, tumble is a clever name because it makes you think of. Suggestive. Tumble. Makes you think of. Yeah, it's a great name. And they're creating a category of a uh, smart laundry. And they're actually um, on this podcast. So, OK, so we go through the positioning. Right. I'm curious to know, once you take all your founders through this process, right now, we've got it down on paper. We're ready to go. When we talk about going to market, what are you having them do? Because some people are like, oh, I want to write a blog or I want to do this. And then Mm -hmm. nothing happens. Like, how do you get how do you get them to generate real marketing momentum that drives revenue? Like, what do Mm -hmm. you encourage uh, a lot of your founders to do to put money in a bank account? Yeah. So usually we don't go out and even talk about the company publicly until not necessarily there's like clear product market fit, but until they have, in some cases, it's dozens of customers. If it's like a B2B SaaS company where they're going after larger contracts, if it's a consumer company, it's sometimes I worked with one customer, they had 25,000 customers before we even announced that they existed. And so there's some momentum that happens before you even write that blog post that all happens quietly, only talking to your target market in non-public ways. Um, I was working with a healthcare company. They, they target pregnant women and they're trying to offer some like value added services to the abduct excuse me, OBGYN experience for pregnant women. And they need a hundred customers to, to kind of prove out that this is working. How do you get those hundred customers? So we do a brainstorm. We say, okay, they have to operate in certain markets and they're looking for pregnant women and they want people with these factors. And we say, where do these people hang out? What could we do? And we brainstorm all the ways we could reach them. And it's everything from the obvious scalable ways, like, you know, Facebook ads, you can tell if someone's pregnant, Instagram ads, um, paid ways to really scrappy ways. Like there are all these pregnancy forums. When I was pregnant, I would check like, oh, I'm 24 weeks and is this normal? And you can post on these forums. It's totally reasonable for someone starting a pregnancy related thing to go on these forums and say, hey, I'm the founder of this thing, looking for some pregnant people who want to try it out really grassroots kind of guerrilla ways of reaching them. And then also in real life ways, where do pregnant ladies go? Um, You know, they go to prenatal yoga. They might go to their hospital and visit for where they're going to give birth. They go to their OBs. Um, And so we, we made a list of all the places these people would hang out in real life and online. And where could we reach them through organic tactics and where could we reach them through paid tactics? And then once you get a handful of them, pregnant people know other pregnant people and they talk. And so building in those referral mechanisms is really key too. And that's why having an understanding of your audience, like I said, pregnant people, but they had an even way more narrow target than just pregnant people. It was like between week X and X who might've had these other factors going on. Uh, And so really understanding who you're going after and then brainstorming all the ways how, how can you get them to pay attention to you 
sometimes it takes seven times for them to hear about you, like you said, with the whistles uh, to actually respond. And so I think just being like, who are we reaching? Where do they hang out? What other services are they buying too? That's a big one. So in the case of like the window uh, company that you mentioned, if you're putting on new windows, you probably also have a general contractor, right? Or you probably also have, and what are those distribution channels that you could reach that person through? Whether it's through a partnership and that can be a paid partnership or just an organic partnership. Um, and so really thinking about like, what are the adjacent services that they might also be using the other brands that they respect? Yeah, no, that's spot on. And I call that a Trojan horse, you know, finding those channel partners, help you drive uh, early traffic. Because a lot of times people do business with those they know, like, and trust, right? What's the mm -hmm. easiest way to borrow trust or build trust? Work with someone who's already credible, you know, that can that you can flow through, like you say, that contractor or that lawyer, someone that's serving the same client. It could be in a similar niche. It can be in the. Uh, it can be in a similar vertical or a different vertical, but just giving you a, a way in, you know, mm -hmm. just get that, just getting that foot uh, in the door. Totally. I was talking about Pampers diapers the other day with someone and uh, Pampers does this so well. They provide all the newborn diapers for all the hospitals in America. That's great. And I think they do it for free. Um, think about, you know, JetBlue Airlines and all the free snacks they give out. That's all like free to JetBlue, I'm pretty sure. And it huge distribution and trial for all those flyers and those brands get, I, I don't know, I tried a few brands, snack brands that way. Because you see it there and you're like, oh, this must be a good brand or it builds that muscle memory. You associate it with quality, depending on what airline you're flying. JetBlue, Jet maybe not so much, but you get on one of these high end airlines. You're like, oh, this is familiar to me. And you associate it with that. Now, mm -hmm. for these founders at first round that you're working with, who's doing the sales early on? Right. Is the it? It's the founder. OK, so you probably can tell the difference when a founder that's comfortable, that's not afraid of sales before they start trying to outsource all revenue generation to some marketing system or some marketing automation. Um, sales is, and I say sales and marketing go hand in hand for a lot of veteran entrepreneurs because most are yeah. going to be small business owners, but particularly yeah. early stage of venture back startups as well. Yeah, it's rare, but it does happen that one of the founders has sales experience. We often fund companies that have multiple founders, not always, but often. Um, most of the time, the founder is not a sales or marketer, Mark Seuss would be not a sales background, not a marketing background. They tend to be more technical uh, for the companies that we work with. And almost always, it's founder led sales first. Um, and the, the founders, if you can't tell your story, how are you going to get a new head of sales to tell your story? And so part of my job and part of the job of other experts and residents at first round is to get that founder comfortable with that. We do media training so that the founder is comfortable talking to reporters. Uh, we can walk them through, you know, some sales training so that they're comfortable uh, giving that pitch. But really, we believe that the founder has to be able to sell their product first, and then they can bring on like a chief revenue officer, a head of sales, a first sales hire, first marketing hire, whoever that right next person is. And that person will basically have to learn through osmosis everything the founder knows, but then also bring to the table their like vertical skill set, which will make them even more effective in some ways than the founder is. But yeah, it's almost always the founder who starts selling. So as we wrap up here, Ariella, did I get that right? I said Ariella, Ariel. right? Yeah, there you go. Ariel. Ariel, you ready for my differentiated point of view for Dog Whistle Brandon? Sure. I think founders need brand strategy 
before they need marketing. And here's why. 100%, yeah. Because a lot of times you're going to get shitty ROI on your social media, on every marketing asset that you put out there. If you haven't identified where you're playing, that field of play, if you haven't identified how you're showing up to the world, where the fish are, because you want to fish where the fish are, and then have a plan for what does it look like to engage with customers. So one of the things I do, a lot of times people hire me for marketing, and then I sit down with them, I'm like, let's build out your, I call it your customer activation cycle. The step-by-step process to convert a, a, a prospect into a paying customer. And then you can go ahead and add that marketing function. So then you just start filling it and just running it over and over again. Yep. And a lot of the time people are pouring money into what we call a leaky bucket, right? They're pouring money at the top. They're spending on their Facebook ads. They're spending on their Google search ads, but all that money is just leaking out of the bottom of the bucket. And so if you have that, you know, that funnel that's really well oiled and you understand it takes them to read a blog post, to try the product, to then convert to a paid subscription or to get a sample of my product, to get a proposal. What does that customer journey look like? And once you have it pretty tight, then you can pour money in and have less of it leak out. Absolutely. I might, I might, that's a million dollar insight for me, the leaky bucket. Cause I've been working on my little drawing and uh, I'm going to draw a picture of that leaky bucket and, and show people. So that's awesome. great. I love the visualization. So you spent almost an hour with us and I really appreciate your time. And as we, you know, close out here, what closing remarks would you like to uh, leave our our listeners with? Sorry, I was about to say viewers, y'all, our listeners with. <laughs> and then also talk to us about the exciting course that you're doing uh, with Maven. Yeah. So what I would say is positioning first, marketing second. So just like you said, brand strategy first, marketing second, you know, get who are you serving? Why should they care? What category do you play in? What's your benefit? What are you up against? And what makes you different? If you can answer those questions, you're going to be set up for so much more success uh, than if you don't. And the plug for my course is if you need help answering those questions or you're not quite sure what exercises to go through to answer them and you want to go through it with 25 other early stage founders, uh, I teach a class through Maven on brand strategy for startups. It starts on May 9th. It's a crash course over two weeks. There's four workshops, a bunch of office hours and some asynchronous work that happens. And you'll come out with that foundation, brand, foundational brand strategy to help build and grow your business. Um, that class, I believe applications close on April 25th. We already have, I think half of the class full or so right now and a bunch of applications. Um, I'd love to get a really awesome diverse cohort of founders in there. So if any black veterans are listening, please apply. Um, and uh, I'd love to meet you in, in not in real life on Zoom on May 9th. So here's what I'm going to do, right? Because of the timeline with the application process, I'm going to run this podcast as soon as possible for you. So we awesome. can uh, hopefully our listeners tuning in will go out there and, uh, and apply. And then I'm also going to plug it um, in our show notes. And either way, I'll be on the lookout for future classes and make sure that I reference um, your course to the veteran entrepreneurial uh, ecosystem. How does that sound? That sounds awesome. Thank you so much. Well, I appreciate you coming on the platform. I reached out to her on Twitter, y'all. You know, Twitter's weird. There's a lot of people out there that like, they so much care about their followers. It's like they're trying to win the internet. It's like the internet is a new popularity contest. That is not me. I go on Twitter. Oh, not me and, either. I think I have like three followers. Yeah, I go on Twitter <laughs> to connect. So like, I was so excited when you uh, reached back to me. And uh, this is going to be great. And it's going to help a lot of founders. And I will... Um, I'm looking forward to teaching this stuff, man. And uh, it's great to have people like you putting the knowledge out there, the resources, because 
back in the day, who knew what a brand strategist was? What do we do? How do you describe it? And so uh, having you on this platform has been a blessing. I'm excited for your continued success, both that first round with your own consulting services and your new uh, course over at Maven. Thank you so much, Iron Mike. It's been awesome to talk to you. Awesome. For all our listeners tuning in, be sure to subscribe to Dog Whistle Branding's uh, newsletter at the link in the show notes. I send our newsletter and podcast at least once a week to share uh, all the topics and insights on marketing, brand strategy, and category design. Until next time, peace, love. Have a great rest of your week. Dog Whistle Branding is brought to you by the team at Ironbound Media, where we help veteran business leaders create, distribute, and grow branded podcast series in order to engage with their ideal audience. We believe that audio is the future of publishing, and we're committed to leading the movement for the veteran entrepreneurial community. You can learn more by visiting our website, ironboundmedia.com. This series is also powered by the Lions Pride, a professional training and coaching company for badass founders that serves mission-driven, high-performing small business owners with at-the-ready resources, battle-tested tools, and full-service support. We're proud to support veterans and other badass business owners at every stage of growth. You can learn more and get more at thelionspride.com. Thank you.